You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. For he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. My prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, and on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, we, as you, as you all know, we're in the Advent season, and this is our second week uh, in the Advent season, and this year... Uh, centers around, for us, the famous uh, Christmas hymn, Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. Um, and the hymn goes like this. I mean, you, you probably all, all know this right here, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come, which is what we talked about uh, last week, which Christian talked about. And then this week is the second line here, let earth receive her king. So that is going to be the focus of this sermon, and really is the focus of Psalm chapter 72. Uh, and in preparing for Advent sermons, uh, I don't think that it has necessarily been our strategy over the years to provide exhaustive studies on a theme or a scripture necessarily, but really to stoke in us as a community the emotions and the postures and the positions of the Advent season. So for example, like we or looking for, to learn how to better enter into waiting, into hoping, into anticipating and yearning. So as we move through the psalm this morning, uh, my hope 
is that we would grasp a hold of the hopeful anticipation of the advent of the king. And if not everything in my sermon, like, lands, right, with me or with you, um, that's okay. It's okay. Because uh, the hope is that we more get a sense for what it was like to hear words like this and words like this elsewhere in Scripture uh, in connection with this coming king and kingdom and sit in hopeful anticipation of its coming. I mean, I hope that we sort of get there together as a community to understand what is it, what was it like to live in Israel and to hear these words and the words of the prophets saying that there is a king who's going to come. He's going to do these amazing things, but to have to wait, to sit in hopeful anticipation because what is talked about is just like so good, right? We want it to come. So that's sort of our charge this morning. Um, earlier this week, uh, I was in D.C. Uh, attending some meetings for work. So for those of you who don't know, uh, I am a lay pastor, so I have a day job. And my day job is I'm a marketing manager for the Amtrak train service here in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, and so every quarter, all of the Amtrak train services get together, and it kind of the, move, the meeting sort of moves around. Uh, but this time, the meeting was in D.C. And... Really, while being there, it was my first time there, the reality of our government became like super, super real to me uh, while being there. Uh, I have seen Independence Day like a bunch of times, and uh, I've watched alien spaceships blow up the White House, right? But it was really a different experience to stand across the street and see the White House right there. Um, I have watched the news, and I've seen protesters protesting out in, out in front of the U.S. Capitol, but it was another thing to stand on the grounds and, like, literally be able to touch the bricks of the building. I mean, that was different, right? I've, I've seen Daniel Day-Lewis portray Lincoln, which is amazing. It's a whole different experience to stand in front of the Lincoln Memorial and then to read, chiseled into the wall, his second inaugural address, which is all about how Every human being is made with dignity and bears the image of God, and that is why what they were after was so important. It was just really something else. It was different. It was different than it had been before for me. And I think living on the other side of the country from our capital, in some sense, puts us at a little bit of a disadvantage of this reality. I mean, sure, we can go to Sacramento, right? But there's something a little bit different about being in D.C. that seems more real kind of carries a little bit more gravity. And I feel like, and some of you may feel like this as well with me, that I've grown up in a culture that really seems to think that there is no authority. I've grown up in a, in a, in a culture that feels like, right, that all authority should be questioned, and really it doesn't have any power over me. And some have called this cultural moment that we live in right, the, the moment of radical individualism. It's almost as if the decisions and the laws and the plans of Washington don't matter, uh, because what really matters is me. What really matters are the decisions and the laws and the plans that I make. I think this is one of the many factors which lead to really, like, really low voter turnout in all of our elections, right? And I'm not here this morning to give us a civics lesson, 
Um, I think there's a link here uh, to receiving what we see in our passage. All throughout human history, we have organized ourselves uh, in groups, right, with leaders. These structures, they've changed, right? The rules have changed. But by and large, there seems to be something ingrained into us at creation that gives us the desire to be a part of something that is larger than ourselves. And then to give that thing, that larger thing, that government or that organization, some sense of power over us. But I think in our cultural moment, we really bought into a lie that has two adverse outcomes. First, we bought into the lie that we are not organized this way. Again, we act as if Washington doesn't exist or it's not important. Or we also fight against lesser forms of authority in our lives, like our bosses at work and our families. Second, we've replaced this reality of being a part of something bigger with the exaltation of self, i.e., right, I am my own master, I am my own Lord, I am my own king. And we sort of bought into this delusion, and we've deluded ourselves into thinking that the choices that we make are somehow solely our own and not affected by our culture, those that we've conceded power to in our lives, or even like marketing people like me, that give you messages in ads to encourage you to buy something. Um, we've really deluded ourselves, right? We think that we are these, like, sole independent agents, that no one affects me, right? We have this sense within our culture. But I think if we step back, if we look at the landscape honestly, I think the question is not whether or not we live in an organized authority structure or a kingdom, which is helpful for our passage this morning, but what kingdom are we living in? Because whatever kingdom you're living in and living for is helping dictate your values. It's helping you make your decisions. And it's shaping your identity. So I think that when we come to passages in Scripture that talk about kingship and the kingdom, it's important for us to step back and realize what kingdom we are living for and living in, because the stakes are quite high. The stakes are these, this kingdom that we are living in dictate our values. They dictate how we make decisions, and there's in, they're helping us shape our identity. We see the struggle for kingdom all throughout the Old Testament. This theme is all throughout the scriptures. In a sense, the story of the Bible starts in a kingdom, in a garden kingdom, and there's two subjects, right, in that kingdom, Adam and Eve. And there's a king, and that king is God. Well, as we all know, this story goes really, really horribly wrong on like page one of the Bible. When an adversary to the throne enters and convinces Adam and Eve that their king may not have their best intentions at heart. So they break the one rule of the kingdom and they eat the fruit, and they find themselves in deep trouble. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. And a deep sense of loss of kingdom enters the world. Humanity is sort of like 
flung into this reality where we've been wired and made to live in a kingdom, but we can't seem to find our way back. So there's this tension of trying to recreate it ourselves. And we see that in Scripture, even at the beginning of Genesis with the Tower of Babel, right? Everyone organized themselves together to create a kingdom and to create a tower in Babel that would say, no, we are our rulers of our own selves. We will recreate the kingdom ourselves. And that does not go so well for them. But an interesting character emerges in the story in a person named Abraham who is called by God out of his earthly kingdom home of Ur to go to a place where God would tell him. God tells him that he's going to make him a nation that will be huge and will bless the entire world. We're told in the New Testament that Abraham left his home in faith, for he was looking forward to the city or kingdom that has foundations who designer and builder is God. So there's this idea in Abraham's story that the kingdom of Eden is coming again, that God is going to do something in Abraham's family and his descendants that's going to bless the world, that's going to recapture this kingdom of Eden. And yet, if you read the Old Testament, right, we watch as Abraham's family They live in a theocracy, much like the Garden of Eden, where God is their king. And yet, nothing like Eden seems to reemerge in the story. Israel fails to follow the laws of the kingdom and continually falls into trouble. Following this period is the, the period in which our passage comes, which is the time of the kings, of the kings in Israel. And the authorship note, if you look just above verse 1 in 72, probably most of your translations say, of Solomon. Now, commentators are split whether David wrote this psalm to Solomon or whether Solomon wrote this psalm to his son or whether Solomon wrote it from words that David told him. But really, whatever the story is or whomever wrote the psalm, this psalm is filled with beautiful kingdom imagery. Perhaps you even heard that beauty as it was being read by Deacon Lauren. I know when I was repeatedly reading this psalm in preparation for this sermon, that there was something inside of me when I heard it and when I read it, in that inside of me, I just went, like, I, like, I want to be, I want to follow that king. Like, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Like, how do I get in to this kingdom that is described here in chapter 72, because it's a kingdom that is marked by justice. It's a kingdom that is marked by caring for the needy, that's caring for the least in society. It's a kingdom that has plenty of food, which sounds good. Uh, It's a kingdom with its enemies defeated. And it's a kingdom that never ends. I want to be a part of that kingdom. Now we know from reading the stories of David and Solomon that neither of their kingdoms reach anything close to the kind of ultimate description we find here in this psalm. So at the end of their lives, 
at the end of the lives of all of their descendant kings, the sense of this psalm's fulfillment and the fulfillment of the returning of the kingdom of Eden to the promise that God made to Abraham to bless the nations is really left unanswered, and it's left unfulfilled. There's this tension, right? People have read these words. These words are present within the community, and yet they have not been fulfilled. And this is where Advent comes. Advent becomes a season in which we remember the angst in waiting for the coming of the one who would be greater than Solomon. One who would really stand up to fulfill this psalm. And the scriptures refer to him and the, the Jewish people refer to him as the Messiah. The Messiah. I'll give you a little spoiler. The Messiah has come. He has come. But his greatness and his kingship is really easy to miss, as the gospel narratives and history illustrate to us. If you blink, you may just miss the wonder and beauty of the Advent story. I think that's why we probably need to spend four weeks every year talking about it together, because it's easy to miss. Advent, of course, means coming. And this morning, we're looking at the coming of the king. Let earth receive her king. But we're going to look at what sort of king is the Messiah? What sort of king the Messiah was promised to be? We're going to walk through this passage in four steps. That he is the righteous king. That he is the sovereign king. That he's the compassionate king. And that he is the eternal king. And for us, as we hear the description of this king, I challenge us to open the parts of our hearts that are troubled with authority and yet simultaneously longing for a kingdom we, we can't describe, right? We're, we're sort of a paradox, aren't we, inside of ourselves sometimes. So I challenge us to hear this description of the king, but also be open for that description to be penetrating to our hearts. And we're going to walk through this passage together, so I really encourage you to leave uh, your Bibles open or your apps open and follow along together. So first we're going to look at the righteous king. If you, I'll read the first two verses of our chapter. It says this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness, and you're poor with justice. First, and by order foremost, the Messiah is a righteous king, meaning he is perfectly right, or he is filled with rightness. Everything he does compared to the standard is perfect. And the psalmist displays his righteousness most effectively in the judgments that he makes or the decisions that he makes on behalf of the people, right? Which is what kings do, right? Derek Kidner, speaking of this psalm, says this, Righteous dominates the opening, since in Scripture, it is the first virtue of government, even before compassion. This point is made explicitly in the Mosaic Law, which forbids partiality in judgment. 
whether it favors, surprisingly, the poor or the rich. And you can read that passage in Exodus 23 at a later time, which describes the Mosaic law and how it puts this priority. The idea that the coming king is righteous, dealing out perfect justice, is the priority of the scriptures. Because what is compassion without justice? How terrible is the idea of an eternal kingdom without justice? The king must first uphold a standard of righteousness and justice to bring and offer hope to his people. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, perhaps even thinking of these words here in Psalm 72, writes this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity of the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. A lot hung on the hope of the coming of the Messiah. A king who would be unlike any other king. A king who would judge rightly, who would bring equity and uphold the poor. There's a lot of hope in the coming of the righteous king. First, the righteous king brings prosperity. You read this in verse 3 of 72, which says this, Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. There is hope in the righteous king because his coming brings prosperity from the hills and the mountains in righteousness. It is his righteousness itself that bears prosperity in his kingdom. His righteousness is the currency of prosperity in his kingdom. Second, the righteous king brings help to the needy. We see that in verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. There is hope in the righteous king because he defends the poor and the children of the needy. The righteous king defends the least in the kingdom. Do you feel weak or insignificant or overlooked? The righteous king sees you, values you, and defends you. Not because you're better than you think you are, but because he is righteous. This may seem like cold, but it's absolutely necessary for the deepest sense of hope. Because the deepest sense of hope is found in his character and not in the ways in which we try to leverage his character. Third, the righteous king brings justice to the world. We see this in verse 4 at the end. And he crushes the oppressor. There is hope in the righteous king because his justice crushes the enemy. His justice isn't some universal affection. It strikes decisively against the enemy and oppressor of his people. It does not just scare them, but it crushes him. There is hope knowing that one day our enemy will be toothless. Fourth, the righteous king revives weary souls. Read in verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. There is hope in the righteous king because his blessings fall on the wounded mown grass, 
which is like the hurting and weary soul that needs to be revived. Do you feel cut down or broken or overdrawn? The righteous king brings nourishment, relief, and peace. Fifth, the righteous king makes those who belong to his kingdom righteous. Read in verse 5 and 7. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout the generations. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. There is hope in the righteous king because his righteous justice makes us fear the Lord and live righteously. The righteous king doesn't just change our circumstances, but he changes us. There is hope in the coming of righteous Messiah King. So secondly, he is the sovereign king. Read this in verse, verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The reign of this, of this righteous king is sovereign, meaning its length and width and height and depth have no end. The prophet Zechariah writes of the Messiah in this way, in chapter 9 of his book. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The complete and total sovereignty of the Messiah was meant to usher in lasting peace, where all lands and all people were united under his rule. This means that the sovereignty of the Messiah was not something to fear, but to anticipate for those who were or are currently prepared to lay down arms in allegiance to him. As we just discussed out of Psalm 72, the king does not just rule or is not just interested in the rich or the useful subjects, but his sovereignty is meant to be hope for the least in the kingdom. The sovereign king reigns over all territories. In verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is hope in the sovereign king because his kingdom is from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. It's very similar to a famous quote that you probably have heard. We can put that quote up here. Maybe. Look, Simba, everything the light touches is your kingdom. But the Messiah's kingdom is even better because his kingdom extends beyond even the places that the light touches. The Messiah's kingdom goes into the dark places, into the scary places. 
His kingdom goes into the dark places of our hearts and the scariest places of our souls. It goes into the dark places of our city and to the scariest places of this world. In all of those, he is sovereign. Second, the sovereign king reigns over all peoples. We see that in verses 9 through 11 as the psalmist is recounting all of these peoples from far-flung nations who would bring him tribute, who would bow their knee to him, encapsulating in verse 11, may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. There is hope in the sovereign king because his reign is over all peoples. There is brotherhood and sisterhood found in his kingdom amongst those that call it home. There is peace in his kingdom for those that submit to his reign. There is peace in his kingdom for every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his sovereignty. If his righteousness makes both poor and rich the same, his sovereignty makes all people groups united under his rule. There is hope in the sovereign Messiah King. But when we hear righteousness and justice and sovereignty, we may start to feel nervous of the dictator and of the tyrant who uses his power to rule over people and to subject people maliciously. But it's not so with the compassionate Messiah King. Read in verses 12 to 14 with me. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their, is their blood in his sight. I think that we are extremely skeptical in our time of compassionate authority. We have seen too many examples of dispassionate authority. Authority that seeks to squash dissent and those that do not perfectly align with it. We have seen authority alienate the other and the different. We have seen laws and rules not meant to bring righteousness and justice, but to keep certain groups and peoples down. And this has left a deep skepticism that any authority structure could ever be compassionate. But this is precisely the claim of the Messiah King. First, the compassionate king delivers. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. There is hope because the compassionate king delivers those in his kingdom. He moves out to affect the situations of the needy. The compassionate king doesn't sit on his throne and in his palace behind doors, but he moves out into the community and into the people to relieve them and to deliver them. Second, the compassionate king has pity. Verse 13, he has pity on the weak and the needy. There is hope because the compassionate king, well, he has compassion. He's moved in his inner being towards those that are needy. He doesn't just exact righteousness and justice with sovereignty like a robot. But he cares for those that he comes to save. 
Third, the compassionate king saves, verse 13, second half, and saves the lives of the needy. There is hope because the compassionate king saves the needy. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. Fourth, the compassionate king redeems, verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. There is hope because the compassionate king redeems those that are oppressed. The word here has the connotation of ransom, meaning that the compassionate king not only delivers, saves, and cares, but he does so at his own expense. He uses his treasury to change the situations of the needy and the weak in his kingdom. Fifth, the compassionate king values the needy. Second half of verse four. And precious is their blood in his sight. Finally, there is hope because the compassionate king values and gives value to those that are needy, weak, and helpless. Even after this description, our skepticism may not be over, right? Perhaps we can wait and see for some proof of this compassion. Because in, the, in this context and from this description, we want to be numbered among the needy, the weak, and the helpless. How often has our skepticism left us spending most of our time trying to seem like we do not need help? But to truly take hold of this king and this kingdom, we need to recognize our deep neediness. We need to recognize our deep neediness, not because we need some sort of self-deprecating humility, but because there is a compassionate king who is ready to meet, heal, and restore us at his own cost. Something that we already sung together this morning. There is hope in the compassionate Messiah as we move through these attributes of the king, which mark the values and the benefits of the kingdom, it's really the last one that seals the deal, right? Verses 15 to 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayers be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All the nations call him blessed. He is also the eternal king. Prophet Isaiah says of the Messiah's kingdom in chapter 9 this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. Permanence is a desire of our culture. As, as we live in a time of rapid change, there is something in our culture that is desiring for stability. One of the beauties of the kingdom of the Messiah is that it never ends. It never 
ends. Many of the themes of the psalm are repeated in this section. It's like a recap, like, of the psalm. But with the context of the fact that the kingdom never ends, the Messiah is the eternal king. In some sense, I think we could say, what, are, what is the good of all of these things if they're just temporal, if they're just going to fade away? But there is hope because the eternal king's kingdom never ends. You don't have to worry about the rise of a new king with different values or attributes. The kingdom of the Messiah king will inaugurate, will be an eternal kingdom that has no end. This means that the hope that he brings is lasting hope. It's hope that you can take to the bank. If the points I pointed out throughout this passage felt like just like a fire hose of information on you this morning, so sort of the point. I mentioned 30, 13 things really quickly there. The coming of the Messiah is not something to be trifled with. It's not just a new president or a new boss. It's an earth-shattering advent. It's something so great that we cannot comprehend all of its awesomeness and all of its benefits. This is not, this is just like one chapter of Scripture. Like, think of all of the prophecies and the other Psalms that deal with the Messiah who's going to come. The benefits, the values, the amazingness and awesomeness of the coming of the Messiah was something that was going to change the world and shatter everything that we knew. It was meant to usher in a kingdom unlike any other kingdom ever. And a part of the point of Advent is to have this sense of wonder and anticipation for something that is almost like too great to describe. It's a type of anticipation that, that hurts. You know, it's like the kid who's, who's laying in bed before Christmas morning, right? He, he cannot fall asleep because what is going to happen next morning is just so great that it hurts. It hurts inside. The consummation of the promise is going to be so great that the anticipation waiting hurts. The hopeful anticipation is excruciating. Think of the experience of the Israelites as they saw their kings rise and fall without this promised king coming. Right? Here comes a new king. Maybe this is the one who's going to fulfill this promise. Here's another king. Maybe it's this king who's going to fulfill the promise. But the glorious kingdom kept not coming. Think of the prayers of the faithful throughout the years with hopeful anticipation for the Messiah to come. God, send the Messiah. Send the Messiah. We need him. But then, think of how shocking this anticipated hope begins. An angel visits an obscure teenage girl to deliver this message. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign 
over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The Messiah has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But the solution of Jesus is not so simple. Jesus doesn't come wrapped in a nice and neat little king box. The message and reality of the fulfillment of this psalm is both subversive, but it's also better than we could ever have imagined. I've talked so long that I wore out the mic. <laughs> this is how good Jesus is, right? Jesus, it takes letting go of the control we desire to have or we desire to give to another and open ourselves to King Jesus. Let us receive our king. It takes deconstructing our view of what a king should look like, which was a significant challenge to his contemporaries and to us. Jesus didn't come in pomp and pride. He came in a humble obscurity, not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. King Jesus invites us to be a part of his kingdom, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message of Jesus is recognize you're in the category of the needy, weak, and helpless. Repent. But me coming can change your whole life in reality if you believe in me. The message of Jesus is to, is to enter into that category of the needy. To truly receive your king, first you must recognize that he has come. He is, Jesus is the righteous king. He lived perfectly and extends his righteousness to us. He is the sovereign king. There is no territory or person too far from his reach. Jesus is the compassionate king. Though being God, he humbled himself and came in human form and willingly died a criminal's death so that we can be a part of his kingdom. Transferring us from the domain of darkness into his glorious kingdom. And Jesus is the eternal king. He didn't stay in the grave, but was raised from the dead. He is seated in power at the right hand of the Father for all of eternity. And he's inaugurated a new kingdom. And the invitation is to repent and to believe. He is a good king. Let us receive our king. If you would look to, with me to the last two, or the second to the last two verses in our passage, verse 18 and 19, I would like us to read this together. Because I think if you read the psalm, and you get to this section, you go, that doesn't really match the rest of the psalm. It probably doesn't. It's more of like, it's more of this like, the psalmist was just like, it was too great, right? He had to like proclaim and praise God. Or perhaps a scribe throughout the years added these to the end of this section of the psalm because it's so great. Let's read this, verses 18 and 19 together.
Pray with me.